podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Before I introduce my guest and the topic of this conversation, I would like to thank Jane Gubel Meyer for making this interview possible. Jane is the inspiring woman behind the Bedside Reading Program. To learn more about her work, please visit bedsidereading.com. People want leaders who are transparent. They want leaders who serve the greater good, and they want leaders who simply do the right thing. And to do the right thing in the eyes of those they serve, it entails truly learning to trust your instincts while at the same time leading from your heart. This episode is about the transformative power of true ethical leadership and the last impact leaders who lead from the heart can have on the organizations they serve. My guest is Dick Copenhaver. He's an author, consultant, and former mayor of Augusta, Georgia. Born in Montreal, Dick Copenhaver moved to Augusta at the age of four. Today, he serves as principal of Copenhaver Consulting with clients in business, economic development, and nonprofit sectors. From 2005 through 2014, Dick was elected three times to serve as mayor of Augusta. Following his time in office, he hosted There It Is with Dick Copenhaver, a popular local call and radio show. He has been recognized by Georgia Trend Magazine as one of the 100 most influential Georgians on multiple occasions. To read Dick's full biography, please visit fitforjoy.org podcast. Here is the interview with Dick Copenhaver. In your own words, who is Dick Copenhaver? In my own words, Dick Copenhaver would be a servant. I've, in my adult life, I've tried to use every platform that I've had, whether it was serving for nine years in office as mayor, um, hosting a radio show for a year, or now with my book, 
the change maker, the art of building better leaders. I'm trying to serve through bringing people together and really building stronger communities. Wow. Great. Thank you. Before we begin to talk about the art of leadership, learning to trust your instincts and lead from the heart, I have a few general questions for you. What is another word for life? Love. I just don't think you can have a full life if you don't have love in it. What is art to you? Art to me is beauty. So I grew up writing and painting, and still I've been writing poetry my whole life. And so to have the opportunity to write a book, but art is something that connects with people. And I'd say the same thing. Art is something that has the very real potential to bring people together. There are so many kinds of art, right? Um, so many. Maybe even a conversation could become an artistic something. It, it is. It is completely. And I think you get that, um, Valeria. It's conversation is art. And to a degree, it's a dying art. So I applaud you for doing this. I had the you know, fortunate opportunity to listen to your one of your pad, podcasts earlier today. But there is an art to conversation. What inspires you to be a good person, to do good in the world, as you have been doing? It's interesting, and that's a great question. I just, I see so much darkness in the world, and Martin Luther King Jr. was a hero of mine, but he said, you know, darkness can't overcome darkness, only light can do that. And violence can't overcome violence, only love can do that. So to me, it's being, trying to be a light in a somewhat dark world at times. And particularly, I think part of leadership is giving people hope. And so what I'm finding through my book and showing that, you know, you don't have to be negative and incendiary and divisive to be successful in politics. I hope it's providing people with a message of hope that they really need right now. What is the world's greatest need? Speaking of what we might be lacking at this time. Unity. And I, I will tell you, unity does not mean you all look the same or think the same or act the same. It's, I was once asked if, if Augusta was a food, what it would it be? And I said, it would be a gumbo. And everybody knows that a gumbo, if you only had one ingredient, it wouldn't taste as good. But I think there's value and health and diversity and being around people that from other parts of the world that may have been socialized in different ways than you have. And that's okay. But unity is about, you know, really focusing on enhancing and celebrating diversity to me. Wow. Yes. Wow. So true. What is your greatest joy? That's a, I, I have several greatest. One is my family. I come from a very big family. My wife and I um, were not fortunate to have children, but I became an uncle. I was the youngest of five kids, and I became an uncle when I was nine. So I'm 52, and we now have 11 great nieces and nephews. So I think that the Lord didn't mean for us to be parents. He meant for us to be an aunt and an uncle. But the second thing is ex doing exactly what we're doing right now. It is communicating and connecting. And I believe that I've been blessed with the gifts of being able to do that. And I was talking to a friend the other day and they said, every time I talk to you, you make me feel so calm. And I'm like, well, if that's 
you know, what I'm put on the world to do to connect people and to communicate with people and to help give people a sense of calm and hope. What a great mission to have. Yes. You mentioned love earlier. What is love to you? Love is, is about warmth, but it's also about vulnerability. And in order to, to love, I think you have to be willing to open yourself up. But it's, I was speaking to a reporter after the book came out, and he said, you talk so much about vulnerability in the book, and in politics, can you be vulnerable? And I said, absolutely. And he said, all the time? And I said, yes, because that's what connected me with the people I served. I didn't act like I had all the answers. You know, I completely opened up to the people I serve, and I think that bond of trust helps foster love in relationships and any relationship, whether it be in a business relationship and a family relationship, the most successful businesses and families and governments, all the foundation of it is trust and focusing on love builds that. Do you believe in God? I do. Who and where is God? I, I believe that God is omnipresent. He is within everything. Um, I don't picture it as just being, you know, this big bearded guy in heaven. You know, it's just he, he is a spirit. And I, you know, I, I will tell you, I believe in God. I'm a Christian, but I don't begrudge anybody else their faith. It's just that that's what I believe. And that's something that's important to me. But it, it's just I, I think everybody, I mean, there is something divine in life. And however you want to define that, I define it as my faith in God, but other people may define it in different ways. I like the way you say that God is everywhere. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you, Valeria, I, something that I do want to say, because I've noticed this. So I had an experience where I was at a church service the other day, and it was just a very intimate, small healing service. And we were having this very deep discussion, and all of a sudden, this beautiful light came through a stained glass window. And I told everybody, I think in life, we all get so busy that, you know, if I believe God is all around us, well, if you're, if you're not looking, if you always have your face in front of a computer, you know, go out into nature. And, but I think we all can get so distracted with the distractions of the modern world that we might not see some of the things that are around us. So true. That's funny you say that because today I missed the sun. It's dark here in New York, cloudy in New York. And I thought about that. Nature has a way of connecting us to uh, this um, mindless sort of state. Yeah, I like the sunlight, right? That makes me think about the idea of God. Well, I'll give you uh, another example. The other day, I was sitting out behind our house on our patio and I was by our fireplace and I was looking at my cell phone for whatever reason, as we all do. It's not just millennials. We all do it. But then all of a sudden I looked up and there was a great blue heron standing right next to the pool. And my wife and I had always joked about we have a painting of a great blue heron that we said, well, that looks like your dad who passed a number of years ago. Well, we remodeled the house that my wife grew up in that um, her father and mother-in-law had built. And I thought, well, that's really Bruz, which was her father's name. 
he's just coming to check up on us. And he's probably t- telling me, get off your phone so you don't miss this. Wow. That's a beautiful story. Uh, my last question, the general questions section. What do you think is the purpose of your life? To serve and to to really bring light into other people's lives and and that bringing them hope. And I can just, I can feel it. I'll tell you, Valeria, this is an interesting story. Um, the <clears throat> So I put the book out there, but so much has happened organically. And University of Texas El Paso's Student Engagement and Leadership Center found the book themselves. I didn't have anything to do with that. So they incorporated it into a program that they have called Powerful Pages. So I found out about it. All of a sudden, I see pictures of students at UTEP throwing up themselves reading my book. So I I reached out to them, but they had a student, they were told to go look for, they charged one student with looking for a, a current book on leadership that connected with them. So she found my book. So as it turned out, and there, there is a spiritual aspect to my life for sure, but they were having their last meeting about the book on November 20th of last year, which was my birthday. So I video conferenced in with some of the students, and I had a young lady from Vietnam tell me, you, I've got tears in my eyes. You've given me hope in politics. And so here again, I, I didn't make that connection But that just talk about a humbling experience. So I'm going to I'm going to speak at the University of Texas El Paso next month. And that place I'd always wanted to get the book in the universities, but I never knew it would be, you know, a Texas border town. But I can't wait to meet the students. I'm like, you guys will always have a very special place in my heart because you found it first. Wow. I always say the greatest things, the most amazing things that have ever happened in my life, I never imagined. I never planned. They were never planned and never imagined. Well, there's a, there's an old st- saying, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And that's that's been the same experience I've had. Let's talk about the art of leadership. What is your definition of a leader? A leader is somebody who brings people together, doesn't tear them apart. A leader makes people feel safe, secure, and included. And I always talk to people, leadership is not about seeking power. It's about seeking to empower. And another saying that I've always had is that, you know, the only power any true leader should concern themselves with is the power to inspire. Because no one individual can get anything done alone, but if you can inspire people with work to work with you, there's nothing you can't accomplish. But one thing I would love to make this point for your listeners, that I think we've mistaken bullying for leadership in today's world. If you have to use fear and intimidation to get your desired outcome, that is not leadership, that's bullying. And it's not sustainable because when you use that to set yourself up in a position of power, you have not built trust. You've not built, you know, a group of people, a team to work with. And there's always going to be looking somebody looking to knock you off that pedestal. So inspiring people, rallying people around a common cause, that's leadership. Wow. How wonderful. What a great answer. You say that 
You have become fascinated by the transformative power of true ethical leadership and the lasting impact leaders who lead from the heart can have on the organizations they serve. I have two questions for you. What are some, some examples of the transformative power when true ethical leadership is the case? Well, you know, I, I would say that, okay, my father was a very ethical CEO. And when he passed, just to have people come and talk to me that were rank and file employees say, so he worked at a chemical plant, but they said he would come walk the floor and talk with, you know, the average employees. He wasn't in an ivory tower. And that to me is a big part of ethical leadership is don't ask anybody to do something you're not willing to do yourself. But as far as transformative leadership, I don't believe that there's any greater example in the 20th century of a servant leader than Martin Luther King Jr. And I've, I've talked a lot lately about that I view organizations, nations, communities, most of them are a bell curve where most people are in the center. You're either center right or center left. But all we see in the media are to a large degree and in politics are the extremes. So I think the reason my book is is striking a chord is because I'm speaking to the people in the middle. But Dr. King did the same thing. He inspired people in the middle, not necessarily people think some people mistakenly think, well, it was all African-Americans and the civil rights movement, which was not true. It was whites, blacks and others that saw injustice and were inspired by him and knew something needed to be done. So ethical, you know, transformational leadership, it's, it, it can be done, but it, you can't lead to the extremes. I mean, that's, that's, if you are pandering to the extremes, that's not leadership either. That's to me, that's cowardice. My other question is what is to lead from the heart How can you describe this form of leadership? To truly be open and honest, and I mentioned vulnerability earlier, it's, and people associate vulnerability with weakness, but it's strength. It, it's easier to, to really wall yourself off as opposed as it is to just open yourself up to the world. And it's funny, I had a guy who's a friend of mine who's, very conservative Republican that read the book. And he said, well, this isn't what at all what I thought it was going to be. I said, what do you mean? And so, so many people assume it's by a former politician that it's going to be on politics, but it's not, it's on leadership. And unfortunately these days people don't associate those two terms. But he said, I thought it was going to be one thing, but it was just you getting up, walking around naked for nine chapters. And I'm like, well, yeah, but, but it's, honest. And I, I think that's why it's touching people or connecting with people. But that's what that vulnerability. But but I would go back to to love the people you serve, whether it's in your business, love and value the people you serve. And I will say that it's a double edged sword, because when you're that vulnerable, you know, if I if I wasn't as sensitive as I am, I might not have been the mayor that I was because you expose yourself to so many people's lives and you're going to funerals regularly and you're seeing tragedy, but that capacity to feel empathy is something that 
made me a much more effective leader. As painful as it was sometimes. So do you connect uh, being vulnerable with being empathetic? I, I do. And I've been fascinated by the idea of sympathy versus empathy. So it's, it's easy for all of us to have sympathy, but empathy means, I think, and that's probably, you know, the vulnerability. Yes, I would say that that equated to a lot of empathy with me while I was in office because I was actually out there with the people I served. So when the community would go through a tragedy, I was experiencing it in real time and in a leadership role. I'll give you an example. My final year in office, I thought, well, which was 2014. I'm like, oh, man, you know, I'm, I'm at the end here. I'm just going to cruise to the end. Well, we had the storm of the century, this ice storm here in Augusta. And, and so I had to lead through that. And it's a funny story. I was speaking at a conference in Florida. And so I got off stage after speaking to thousands of people on a Tuesday morning. My executive assistant came up to me and said, all flights have been canceled back into Atlanta. And I'm like, we are not going to not be in Augusta when this happens. So we rented a car, drove back. Um, that night at 11 o'clock, the fire chief brought the paperwork by my house to sign off on um, a state of emergency. The next morning, I'm on the Weather Channel with Jim Cantori at, at 9 a.m. But the amazing thing, so so I was here, I was with the people. One of the things I learned through that situation is when you have mass power outages, all some people have is their phone. So I was able to use Twitter to keep people uh, up to date with the latest information. But to go through the midst of that and people know that I was there with them, I think that's part of leadership. But to me, it was inspiring because there was no loss of life. The community came together and everybody took care of each other. And that to me, I don't, you know, I'm a kid who grew up thinking that we should treat everybody the same every day as we do on Christmas. But that just, I think that was our community's finest hour to, to go through that incident. And it, it happened in my last year. But, but I think having that connection to the people and that bond of trust, when I was putting out information, they knew that they could trust it. What a wonderful message of support and, and trust, right? And just being there when people need us, regardless. Well, and that's, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm very blessed in that regard. I, I think about it because the mayor of Atlanta a month earlier and the governor of Georgia had kind of been caught flat-footed when a major storm hit. And so the first thing, and I, I was not going to not be back for my people, but I also, there was a thought in the back of your mind and, you know, fear can be a great motivator as well. I thought, okay, I can see the headline, you know, it's going to be mayor's sons on beach in Florida when storm of the century hits. I'm like, nah, don't, I've, I've, I've done pretty well for my first eight years and don't want that to undo the goodwill in my last year. You also say that doing the right thing entails truly learning to trust your instincts while at the same time leading from your heart. So my question is, 
how do we know the difference between our instincts, our beliefs, and our desire to fulfill the expectations of others? You know, uh, that's a hard thing. And I don't know. I think trusting your instincts can be developed. Um, I, I think it, it's something that you have to sometimes act in, you know, what is not your own best interest. To be perfectly honest, you you know that you'd like to do one thing, but you have to do another. It takes the discipline to I'll give you an example. So my wife is in property leasing and management. And my my last year in office, we had a tax increase come up. So the mayor here breaks ties um, to in when there's a tie vote with our local governing body. So we had not raised taxes or given employee raises in five years. So it came down to me voting to increase taxes or not. And I, I took staff recommendation. I'm like, we haven't given our employees a raise in five years. Easy decision for me to make. But, you know, my wife being a large property owner and owning real, I mean, commercial real estate, she, I mean, that was a direct impact to her bottom line. But she understood that this was to serve the greater good. There had been no increases in five years. So she understood, which I knew she would. Obviously, there were large property owners who were not happy with me. But I, I will tell you, I think all too often in leadership roles, we give in the vocal minority. And I really didn't catch as much flack as people thought I would for that. And I actually had, I was running on the track at the Y one day and had somebody give me a high five because they're like, we know we need revenues to grow. So that tr- that trusting your instinct and that that was an instinct call. It was negatively impactful to my family, but I just knew it was the right thing to do. So I guess um, the question that comes to mind now about decision making, what is the feeling that we have after making a decision when we do the right thing, when we know we are doing the right thing? I'll, I'll give you a, a real world example. <laughs> um, so, so my first year in office, so I ran in 2005 to fulfill an unexpired term. So I had to turn around and run again in 2006. But my first year in office, I was speaking to a Christian alternative school, right? So a, a Christian school, but for troubled children, and they were teenagers. So there were parents in the room, but after I spoke to them, they, I said, guys, ask me any questions, you know, whatever you want to ask me, I'm, I'm going to be open and honest. And the first question I got was, and now, mind you, this was an election year. A kid said, Mr. Mayor, have you ever done drugs? And I said, look, I would like to tell you that I hadn't, but I'm not going to lie to you. But I said, I will tell you this. I, I have seen the lives of so many people that I know from my generation completely ruined. And these were people that should have gone on to successful careers. And I said, I've never seen long-term drug use benefit anybody. And I've seen it destroy families. So after I said that, and you know, talk about vulnerability, you're in an election year in a room full of teenagers and parents, but I had parents come up to me and say, thank you for being honest. And <clears throat> It really, literally, 
after I left there, I'm like, that was so freeing. You know, I, I would have, if I had lied to those kids, you know, because I think this is going to negatively impact my reelection, I, I would have felt awful. But instead, I felt very free because I had done the right thing and told the truth. Mm, so honesty, that feeling that we ha- we were, no matter what we were, honest. We are not, yeah, we are not attached to the, the consequence of being honest. We're not afraid. What are some of the basic principles to consider before we make a decision, an important decision? There's, there's an old saying that says, measure twice, cut once. And I believe in that. And I think what you see politicians in particular, and I can speak to that because I've been there, they make knee-jerk reactions. And I tell people decisions made in vacuums end up in having the, you know, the negative consequences kick in almost immediately. And there can be a snowball effect. So just take a deep breath. Don't make a snap decision. And in in the world of politics, and I know in the world of, you know, the 24-hour media cycle, just be aware that, and I've seen politicians do this, somebody sticks a camera in their face and says, tell me your position on this. Well, they haven't really considered it and haven't had time to consider it. But it, but that, once again, the law of unintended consequences kicks in quickly. So don't wait for it. Don't be indecisive, but don't let anybody pressure you into making a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, if I might ask... What was the hardest decision you ever made? While I was in office or ever, ever? I guess in general, in general. Well, I will tell you just just in office, I mean, and I've been through situations. I, You know, my wife and I have had family members that we've lost that we've had to decide to make the call to take them off of life support. You know, that's life and death. But I will tell you, interestingly, one of my more difficult decisions to make while I was in office was to, so I ran in 2005 and 2006, and then I had to run again in 2010. After that, I was term limited. But to after having been through five years of it and seeing, you know, it does impact your family and it, it does it's not easy, you know, when your wife sees you accused for things that are absolutely not true and it was petty things, but you know, you've got the people that comment on the internet and all this stuff. I it it was a difficult situation to make in a way because I knew that if I was going to serve another four years, if I take an oath in office and swear to the people to serve them for four years, I can't walk away. I mean, I feel that I felt that strongly about it. So it wasn't like any other job where if things are going terribly that I could quit. I mean, I was committing to a job for four years that I knew there was no way I could walk away from it. And and I think people knew that. So I did not make that decision lightly. And I believe for the city, it turned out to be in the long run a good decision. But it's. It's, you know, once I just believe that once you take an oath to do something like that, you know, you, you need to be fully committed and fully in. 
do you connect this um, this kind of decision making to marriage relationships? I I do, and yeah, it's but I, I am very blessed to have because Valeria I, for me even the book was another leap of faith. So running for mayor was a leap of faith. I I did five half Ironmans, which was a leap of faith, and then doing this. You know, at 52 years old, I'm getting into a field I know nothing about, but I know that I'm called to do this. I just feel like it's a call on my life. But I'm very blessed to have an extremely supportive wife. My my wife, Melissa, I joke with people, the book was published by Forbes Books, and I bet you I'm the only Forbes Books author whose wife carries around a book bag wherever she goes, selling books and setting up impromptu book signings. But, but that's... But even with me running for mayor, that had to be a mutual decision. We lost my mother-in-law eight days after I announced. And so I went to my wife and my father-in-law and said, said, if you guys don't want me to do this, I won't do this. And my mother-in-law's name was Kitty. And they both said, Kitty would want you to do this. So that's here again, it. I think in the decision-making process, particularly in marriage, it's got to be collaborative. And I I like collaborative leadership. I like to feel like my wife is a, we're equal partners in our lives together. But that's, even in leadership positions, you have to have people you can trust to, to help at times, you know, to help with the, to give you input on the decision-making process. You just can't, you learning your trust, to trust your instincts doesn't mean that you make every decision unilaterally. Mm, right. Wow. Yeah, I, I love that word, uh, collaboration. Yeah, just working together, supporting one another, right? Yes. You say that learning to trust our instincts to serve the greater good and to lead from the heart, it's not an easy proposition. Why? Well, Because it goes against the status quo and the norm of, I think, what the world teaches us right now. And maybe it always has, but it's we want instant gratification. And leading that way is leading for the long haul. And it's looking at the big picture. And I'll, I'll give you an example. And this is this is something that I believe that good leadership always means, you know, leading in that way, leading from the heart, leading ethically. But I remember when I was first in office, so I took every opportunity for nine years in to go and speak to kids in schools. And I remember people saying, well, why do you do that? Because kids don't vote. And I said, well, but don't they need to know that they've got an elected official over the city who cares about their health and welfare? Well, now you know, five years out of office, those kids are 20 and 30-something-year-olds and regularly, and young leaders in our community, they come up to me and say, do you remember when I when you came to my school? So being mayor and trying to set that example of what leadership looks like for not my nine years in office, but directly getting through to the children of our community, I hope it's helped create a new generation of leaders who are focused on leading from the heart and focused on serving. And I'm actually seeing that 
But if I had just taken the short view and said, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, I should be speaking to voters, not to kids. But it, but it's it's hard to take the long view at times. And so often politi- politicians make decisions based on what's politically expedient, not what's in the interest of the greater good. Well, I love that, though, about about you, what you've done, what you do today with as an author. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another question I have here that I guess I must ask, what is the best thing to do when our leadership is questioned? It it always will be. And it's just to still focus on doing the right thing. So I used to tell kids that, you know, I, Augusta is 200,000 people. And I knew at any given time when I made a decision you can't make everybody happy, but, but it can't, that can't stop you from making a decision. So you, you can't lead to please everybody. And I think particularly, once again, if you're trying to lead to or listen to the vocal minority and think that's prevailing public opinion, it's not. So I, I'll give you an example. I would have other elected officials on controversial issues tell me, well, my phone's lighting up on this. And I'm like, well, man, how, how many calls you get? 14. I'm like, we serve a city of 200,000 people and you're going to let 14 angry people make you, force you into a decision that's not in the best interest of the majority. But that's some, it's the tail wagging the dog. So you're going to get your leadership question. And it's interesting. I talk about governing to the middle. So a real world example of this during, I believe it was during election year. So I, I was targeted by, I joined a group that Michael Bloomberg had put together mayors against illegal gods. So I'm just sort of like, well, who wouldn't be against illegal gods? I didn't know that the group had become controversial, but I grew up hunting. I'm a gun hunter myself. I I do think we should have gun control, though. I think that's just common sense. But so this group called Georgia Gun Owners targeted me and said, you know, we need to let this anti-gun mayor hear what we think about him. Well, they said they had 20,000 members, but it generated maybe 100 calls and emails, which I returned and took and said, look, I'm a gun owner myself. I, I take offense at somebody calling me anti-gun. I'm, I'm not, but I'm just common sense. And they, they, you, every time the people would say, well, they didn't tell us that. I'm like, of course they didn't. And so when I was first elected mayor, we started a mayor's prayer breakfast. The first day I was in office, which continues on to this very day. And it's non-denominational. It's open to everybody. We've been to you know, different houses of worship, the synagogue. But so two weeks after I get targeted by Georgia gun owners, I get targeted by the Freedom from Religion Foundation, who says that, you know, you need to cease and desist. You're violating the separation of church and state, which no city resources were going in. Churches or places of worship would hold them and fix breakfast. That was pretty much it. So no government resources But so then I was meeting with somebody from Minneapolis, Minnesota, which I believe is where the world headquarters of the Freedom from Religion Foundation is. 
But I said, oh, yeah, I've got a group up there that's really mad at me. And he said, who's that? I said, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. He said, oh, my gosh, you know, I can't stand that group. They they have a picture on their website of this huge palatial building, and they say that's their world headquarters. They said, they're, they're in a strip mall trolling the Internet every day trying to find people to sue. But I use that to say, so I'm sure if you were supportive of Freedom From Religion Foundation, you would have cre- questioned my leadership or – if you were a big gun lobbyist, you would have questioned my leadership. But my take on that was, if I'm getting the far left and the far right ticked off at me in two weeks' time, I'm probably doing something right, focused on the greater good and serving the majority. Yeah, I love the way you say that, which is uh, has been said so many times. Uh, we can't please everyone. But as long as we do the right thing, we know we are doing the right thing, we'll be okay. One of my last questions on this section, in what ways do you remember your father the most? Wow, that's a that's a very good question. I I just remember our conversations and my father was not a you know, he was a man of few words, but people would say but but when he speaks he had a hunting buddy nickname him the professor, he said, because he doesn't say much, but when he speaks, you listen. And so I, I remember his wisdom. I remember his dry sense of humor. I remember his kindness and compassion as well, his love of family. But he just, he was a really, he was a true Southern gentleman. And I, I think that's what you know, I was raised to believe that being a gentleman is a good thing. And that's the way I've always tried to conduct my life. And when I was in office, I would have people say, well, why don't you just lose it and go off on people and everything? I'm like, because my dad taught me to be professional and I don't care if I'm in politics or what I do, I'm going to behave professionally because I believe it's it's a different job, but it's a job where you should behave professionally. And some people like to say, well, let's just give it a pass and it's politics and that's politics as usual. But there used to be statesmen on both sides of the aisle when I was growing up that, you know, that I admired. And it's unfortunate. I was reading a piece recently by a young lady that goes to Cal Berkeley that's the executive director of an organization called Bridge USA, which I'm really excited about. They're on 17 campuses nationwide, and they're they're trying to bring people of different viewpoints together to have a civil dialogue, which it seems to be taken off. So that's extremely cool to me. But she made the point that if in my lifetime, all I've ever witnessed is political dysfunction. So that to me, and I'm glad, I hope that generation of leaders can use the book as a roadmap or sort of a blueprint, because I I thought about that and I had statesmen to look up to and emulate once again in both parties, but where are they now? Would you like to add anything before I begin asking you my last questions? No, I'll tell you, I just very much appreciate you giving me a platform to really, once again, hopefully get out a message of hope and help people. And and literally, if I go back and look at, at politics and the stress it creates 
in families, in communities, that is not healthy. You know, when we accept each other, we love each other, we trust each other, we lead longer lives. And I don't think most people want to be manipulated into being afraid, but that's exactly what politics are doing. Either side, it's using fear and intimidation as a, I mean, to manipulate people. And that's fear and intimidation are strong motivators, but I just don't believe that's how people want to be. I, I don't want to live my I want to hang around a bunch of cool, forward-thinking people that want to change the world and have a big party and everybody's invited. Unless you're all neg- negative and then maybe, you know, we'll check at the door. But <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's cute. Um, thank you so much for your presence. Oh, oh my God, in the message. Yeah, this is, this is it. I'm so glad. Um, my final questions, um, I call them well-being final questions, whatever comes to mind. The first one, how do you define success? What is success to you? The most lives I could potentially touch and impact for good. What is to be strong? To be able to admit that you're weak and that we that we need each other and we're not nobody is strong all the time. I grew up in the South and you know, a Southern man has taught to keep a stiff upper lip and everything. I'm like and that's that's good, and it's you can be tough, but you can also be compassionate. Yeah, what a great combination. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? Oh gosh, I, I think the the hardest lesson to learn possibly was that I can't fix all the problems and just sort of relinquishing that. Because I think it's a natural male thing to where we want to fix things. But it was a great lesson. And I'll tell you who taught it to me was my wife, Melissa. In our first year of marriage, she was having an issue. And so like a typical guy, I'm trying to tell her what she needs to do to fix it. And she said, I don't want you to fix my problem. I just want you to listen to me. And that moment, I'm like, sometimes... There's a natural inclination to want to fix things, but sometimes it's better to just listen. What is another word for peace? Tranquility. And I, those may, might be synonyms, but but I do. I, and, and I would even, I, I'll tell you, no, peace is unity. And I, I tell people, and it sounds like a catchphrase, and it is, but there can be no community without unity. You have to have unity to have community. Or health or happiness or everything else that's good. Yes. <laughs> I agree. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, what change would you make in your life? I I don't know that I would make any at this point. Well, I would make it a point to get around and see. I've got We've got friends all over the nation and all over the world, which we're very blessed to have that but make it a point to get around and see more family and friends. But I will say that that's sort of mine and my wife's hope through the book is that it gives us an avenue to get places where we have family and friends that had we not had this opportunity, it, it, the world might not have opened up that way like it is for us now. I spent a lot of time in Australia back in the nineties and have the book is really doing well and, you know, touching lives in Australia. So I hope that that's going to be a door to open to get back to Australia. 
Do you believe in life after death? I do. What kind of life? I I just picture it sort of as warmth and light, but no limitations. And when I say that, no limitations, we all do this, Valeria. We and I I work on this all the time. We build walls for ourselves, which you know, I pray to get beyond those walls. As I say, this is a leap of faith for me, and I don't know where the book is going to take me, but I just, I think after you're gone, there's there's no limits, and which I think limits or constraints develop to a large degree by the human mind. Yes, I agree. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? The calling on my life is this book. I have no doubt. I know that the greatest fulfillment I get is through connecting with people, whether it's writing or speaking or having a conversation like we're doing now. And I, I'm just, I, I think about living our lives online and you start to develop this idea of your self-worth being the number of friends you have or the number of likes you get on a post or the, and that's, that's not real, but direct communication is I had a, had a LinkedIn post get 22,000 views recently. And I thought, but what does that really mean? And like everybody else, when it got to 15,000, I'm like, well, gosh, is it going to get to 20? But then I'm like, I it just, I'm like, what does that really mean? But this, to have a conversation with you or to talk to somebody who my book has touched their life or to get to speak in front of a crowd where you can feel you're connecting those are the things that bring fulfillment. Thank you so much for your wisdom. I really appreciate it and for this meaningful conversation. Well, this this has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you to our good friend Jane for connecting us. Oh, yeah. I hope that she'll listen to this. Absolutely. I'll be mentioning her in the beginning. I'll send it to her uh, a link to the episode, too. Where can we find more information about you, your book, products, services, future projects? You can, my book is on Amazon. You can um, check out my website, Deke Dash, that's Deke Dash Copenhaver, C O P E N H A V E R dot com. On the consulting side, I have another website, Copenhaver Consulting.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So you can find me there as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Deke, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dick Copenhaver, please visit his website, dick-copenhaver.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.